Hello out there, we're on the air, and welcome to Hockey Night in Winnipeg. <laughs> was that a good uh, Stomping Tom Connors reference? That was great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, welcome to One Great History, everyone, a podcast all about the great and not-so-great parts of Winnipeg history that we find fascinating. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we are two occasionally employed historians who are taking our quarantine time to make a podcast with our friend Nick. Hello. And today's episode is all about hockey. And we <laughs> so we're all big hockey fans here, right? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did sarcasm uh, come across over <laughs> <laughs> I think it came through pretty loud and clear. Yeah. Hockey is one of those definitively Canadian things, though. It's hard to talk about Canada without bringing up hockey. It sort of goes hand in hand with, like, maple syrup in Tim Hortons. Mm-hmm. But also Tim Horton was a hockey player. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, like, it all sort of loops back around. It all comes back to hockey. It really all does. And I feel like you can't find a Canadian city that doesn't have some sort of, like, hockey history or legacy to it, and Manitoba's no different. Mm-hmm. So we're going to sort of go over some of that, but hockey is hard to escape even now, even sort of in quarantine. Yes. Do you guys remember uh, when you saw your first hockey game? I think I saw a moose game when I was a teenager, and that's still the only hockey game the I've been to. The only one? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I um, Okay, when I was a kid, I remember going to my best friend's brother's like hockey practices, but I don't, okay. even then, I don't think I ever saw like a game. That's why it's just been one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw my first one. I saw a moose game when I was like seven or eight, I think. I don't remember. Well, I spilled a snow cone on my pants and then my brother threw up and we had to go home. Oh, great. <laughs> have you been to like a proper Jets game? Oh, yeah. Okay. Only I'm, once though. I'm I won not... tickets, so. Ah. Yeah, I guess you guys were too young when the Jets were here the first time, probably. Yeah. When were they? I think they, they left in 95 or 96. So I would have been just a little, little one. Yeah, I was way too young for that. I do remember when the Jets came back. Well, <laughs> yes, obviously. But that's, a, that's a whole other story. We'll get into that in a minute. But I don't know. I grew up sort of around hockey. My brother's a big fan. I'm less so. I'll watch games if they're like, if the Jets are close to the playoffs and it's exciting. But then the one time we did get close to the playoffs, every game I watched, they lost. And I was like, oh no, what if it's me? <laughs> so I stopped watching out of nerves. Yeah, and I very much don't come from a sports family. I did a couple years ago, just on a fluke, join a hockey like fantasy league with my friends. And, and your fantasy up, league did shockingly well. I did shockingly well, chose players completely at random, <laughs> and, and I think came in second in our league. So, <laughs> I mean, good for you. Yeah. So hockey is, is very interestingly Canadian that it doesn't really exist outside of Canada for the first little bit. There's versions of hockey, like floor hockey, that have been played for thousands of years. But ice hockey specifically is Canadian. Mm. And I feel like like most Canadian sports, a couple different cities try to uh, take claim for having the birthplace of it. Makes sense. So um, Montreal, Windsor and Nova Scotia, and Kingston, Ontario all claim to be the birthplace of hockey. Hmm. And it's one of those things where you can't really prove it. No, tell us which one. <laughs> I mean, Montreal would make sense yeah. based on where the story is going to go, but it's hard to say. Like, you can say that mm-hmm. and, unless you have the documents to back it up. Right. Who knows? I don't think any of them really do. But the first official game of hockey was played in Montreal in 1875. How do you mean official? Uh, there were referees and it was advertised and it oh. was like a whole thing. There were teams. Okay. Yeah. And it establishes sort of the general rules of hockey as we know it today, um, but there wasn't any safety gear. And also the pucks were made of wood. Okay. <laughs> Today they're like rubber and they don't hurt quite as much when they hit you, but being clocked with a wooden disc at a high speed <laughs> with no helmet would be brutal. 
But hockey really starts to take off by sort of the mid-1880s in eastern Canada. And this mm-hmm. is when they have the Montreal Expo. And they start having hockey games at it. Mm. And in 1889, Lord Stanley saw his very first ever hockey game at the Montreal Expo, and his family got really into hockey as a result. Oh, his two fun. sons formed a team, his daughter started playing, and then he created the Stanley Cup. Oh. So the Stanley Cup worked a little different then, because there was no like NHL, it was a championship cup. I'm not right. going to get too far into this, because I don't know how into the weeds we want to get with hockey regulations. Yeah, I mean, I barely know the normal rules of <laughs> hockey. I don't think I can get into... That kind of thing. Yeah, okay. So basically, if you won the Stanley Cup, you maintained possession of the cup until you lost it. Okay. In a championship game. That's basically all you need to know. Right. And they would do like a playoff series to like win it. So you might play a game like best of three or best of five. It was set out by the league and by the teams each time. Mm-hmm. So each season tends to differ. And some years, just it stayed with the same team that had won it before. That all makes sense? Yes. Okay. So that's all happening in Eastern Canada. Out in the West, hockey begins to pick up in mm-hmm. the 1880s. It may have happened earlier in like an unofficial capacity, but hockey in Winnipeg was officially founded in 1889 with the creation of the Winnipeg Victorias and the Winnipeg Hockey Club. Okay. The Winnipeg Hockey Club goes by that name, but it actually had an official team name and it was the Winnipeg Winnipegs. <laughs> <laughs> Creativity. Yep. That's, so, that's our strong suit here. They're not generally called anything other than the Winnipeg Hockey Club, I right. think, because calling them the Winnipegs so, is embarrassing. Also, fundamentally confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so the first official game was played on December 20th, 1890, and it was the Victorias playing the Winnipegs. Yeah. The game cost a whole 15 cents. Oh my. Very cheap to get into. The game was played at the Winnipeg Street Railway Rink, which is owned by Albert Austin, who is known for managing the streetcars in Winnipeg. Oh. So that rink is sort of at the intersection of Jubilee and Osborne. Okay, yeah, yeah. There would have been sort of an amusement park there in mm. the 1880s and 90s. And that's where the rink was. Is that, was that where River Park was? Is yeah. that the one we're talking about? Yeah, they used to have like a big wooden roller coaster. Yeah, there exactly. Too. Yeah. I Same think thing. There's still that, um, the streetcar stop. There sure is. I was there for a scavenger hunt, weirdly huh. enough. So yeah, there's all of that. It's very exciting. But the papers had a very interesting take on hockey, and I'm going to quickly pull that up. There was a very funny article that was put out about it. So this is um, the article the Free Press put out when they started playing hockey in Winnipeg for the first time. This is before the official game, but it's when people are starting to play it. Okay. It's called Introducing Hockey, the Montreal and Quebec popular winter sport being played here. A number of Winnipeg's finest young men are going about at present with beautifully variegated countenances. (laughs) Were it in the summertime, everyone would assume that they have been playing our gentle national game. But, it being the winter season, some may imagine that a wave of pugilism has passed over the city, leading to numerous John L. Sullivan encounters. To demonstrate how erroneous this impression would be, it is only necessary to remark that a hockey club has been formed in town. Its members play every afternoon at Mr. Austin's open-air skating rink, and the ambulances wait outside for the victims. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, they're saying that a bunch of young men in Winnipeg are walking around with, like, black eyes and basically, fat lips. And... It uh, goes on. Okay. <laughs> this is the first attempt to introduce into the city a game which in Montreal, Quebec, and Ottawa is as popular in winter as lacrosse in summer. Indeed, it much resembles the latter game, and in the East, the players for both games are mainly the same set of men, but being played on skates, it is necessarily a much faster game than lacrosse. 
It remains to be seen whether the game will flourish here. The severity of the climate really demands for such ar- rarely demands for such arduous exercise a covered rink. Still, the young men who are at present playing industriously on these afternoons on Mr. Austin's rink find the sport enjoyable. It's, it's like, it's kind of crazy to think about a point actually when we were like, I don't know if hockey will work here. Yeah. It was like, uh, will it be as popular as lacrosse? Yeah. Isn't that an insane thing to say today? Yeah. I mean, I know lacrosse. I know that lacrosse is still our like official sport. Uh, we have both now. Lacrosse is our official summer sport. Ah. Hockey is our official winter sport. Right. So we have two official sports. But yeah, the last time I heard about someone playing lacrosse was, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, back in 1890, who knew if hockey would ever take off? (laughs) But it did. Yes. They underestimated Winnipegger's willingness to be outside. To be outside, and I think to beat each other up on the ice. (laughs) Yeah. So going back to that first game, it wasn't quite as violent as the papers were making hockey out to be. There were no big injuries in the first official game in Winnipeg, and the Victorias won 4-1. Mm-hmm. And then we start trying to compete nationally for the Stanley Cup. At the time, the uh, championship was known as the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. Okay. But it was still Lord Stanley's Cup. That's what they're competing for. The cup was a different one than we have today. They had to replace it when the plaques got too full, basically. Every time a team won, they'd put an engraving on it, right? Right. Past a certain point, it filled up, and there's a new cup now, but... Is that old one still somewhere? It still is. I think it's at a museum in Ontario. That would make sense. Yeah. It was in maybe the Hockey Hall of Fame. Probably. Or Sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, that would track. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where else it would go. I don't know. <laughs> Some small town museum somewhere. <laughs> Could be. So the first time Winnipeg competes for the Stanley Cup is in 1896. Mm-hmm. Or the first time they compete and win, I should say. So that's pretty fast, actually, from like our first game to like now we're competing. Six years. Right? Six years to sort of enter the national stage, mm-hmm. as it was. And... It attracted a lot of attention, both locally and in Eastern Canadian cities. People filled up the rinks. There was a championship game in December, and most of the seats were sold out in advance. Tickets normally cost like one to two bucks. And if you were paying for a reserve seat, it was five to 12. One guy in Calgary paid $25 for a last minute ticket. Wow. In 1896. That's tremendously expensive. That's I so don't know. expensive. I don't know what that would be at the exchange rate, but, or it's inflation rather, but that's a, a lot. lot. I mean, probably about as much as a Jets game costs now. Actually, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but just to sort of get a glimpse of how popular the actual games were, 700 people were attending practice matches. Huh. So this was like a huge thing. And part of the reason for that may have been that early hockey was really solidifying a rivalry between Eastern and Western Canada. Ah, right. So this still kind of exists today. People mm-hmm. from Toronto poke fun at us we poke fun at toronto all the time yeah but especially in the 1890s there was a belief that people in winnipeg were sort of western hicks right we were a country town that wasn't civilized we were a mess so this is a belief you say yeah (laughs) (laughs) but then in contrast people in winnipeg often thought of people in ontario as being sort of stuck up and pompous and sort of traditional in a way that we were not Mm -hmm. and then with hockey you have a chance to see that rivalry being played out in real time because we have a team that we can root for, and they have a team that they can root for, and that becomes sort of a battle. Right. Which is really interesting. So it makes sense that people got so into it. Mm-hmm. And I guess you can't go see it on TV, right? So if you want to see it, you're well, going to have to be Where do you there. think you would go? I guess you go to the game. Not quite, actually. No? So obviously we didn't have radios at home, and there were no TVs in mm-hmm. the 1890s. But what you could do is go to a hotel. Oh! So they would actually set up telegraph wires 
direct to the rink to the hotel and you could get play-by-plays from a guy who would read them out as they came in. You know what? I think I remember a reference to that in Murdoch Mysteries. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. That's one way to remember that. But yeah, it's very much like going to a pub today. Right. Things huh. don't change a whole lot. So in 1896, you could have watched the game at the Manitoba Hotel or at the Grand or the Bijou Opera House. So there were some options to go out and watch that in public. The other option was actually to go out onto the street because places like the Tribune and the Free Press would actually post the scores up on the board as they got it in. So you could crowd on a street corner on a wintry day and see what happened. Like a whiteout party. Yeah, very much so. It's, yeah, Winnipeg has stayed consistent throughout all of this. (laughs) (laughs) We are big fans of hockey through and through, and we will go out and celebrate Mm -hmm. the moment our teams win anything. And we did win in 1896. We defeated the Montreal Victorias 2-0. to zero. Um, In case you weren't paying attention, our team was the Winnipeg Victorias. And right, they were I was the just Victorias. That that's, that's very confusing. Yeah, it's... They refer to the teams as Montreal and Winnipeg, okay. generally. And Winnipeg gets excited, because we have now defeated those people in Eastern Canada. We've done it. <laughs> and when the players arrive home with the Stanley Cup, there is a massive parade on Main Street. It is huge. The, uh, the cup had its own, basically, cab that it would ride in. Oh. And crowds were singing the Winnipeg Victoria's Team Chant, which goes hobble-gobble, <laughs> razzle-dazzle, <laughs> sis-boom-ba, Victoria, Victoria, rah, rah, rah. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it sure does. That's not real. <laughs> Starting with Hobble Gobble is the choice that really threw me. That's great. Hobble Gobble, Razzle Dazzle. Oh man, I am Hobble Gobbled and Razzle Dazzled by that. Just trying to bring that back. Yeah. Better than shouting True North during the national anthem. It's true. Yeah, let's try and get a chant of that going during the next next Jet game. And then we'll get beat up and kicked out. And during this parade, we actually started an interesting Stanley Cup tradition, which is people poured champagne into the cup and the players drank from it. Right. That is still a thing players do when they win the Stanley Cup to this day. It apparently started in Winnipeg. Oh. Yeah. And the papers had a field day with this. Across Canada, there is um, a poem that both the Free Press and the Montreal Gazette published that really sort of solidifies both the rivalry and how seriously people were taking this. So this is the free press's portion. Mm-hmm. We fellows in the Woolly West play hockey every day. We start to practice in July and keep it up till May. Well, down, down in poor old Montreal, though now and then they've snow, they never know the keen delight of 83 below. <laughs> <laughs> and then Montreal's retort was this. And so the Vicks got on the train and headed for the West. They were not saying very much, but meant to do their best. They showed that a fat old East is very much alive. They played those plucky Winnipegs and beat them six to five. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. I like that's uh, that's quite charming to Isn't fight it? through verse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little poetry battle in the middle of your hockey game. Yeah. Not really a thing you'd see today. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be fun to start writing slam poetry about the Stanley about Cubs the Jets, playoffs yeah. in like 2020. <laughs> So at this point, the Victorias and Winnipeg start gathering a number of sort of fairly prominent team members, some of which go on to do other things, some keep playing hockey. At the time, all of these teams were amateur teams, mm-hmm. so essentially none of them were being paid for this. They all had day jobs. Right. And most of them were businessmen in Winnipeg, so if you look up the teams in the early days, most of them owned like a warehouse downtown. That's generally how that goes. Mm. But um, one of the team members that I want to go over, uh, Fred Higginbotham, 
he played the game in 1896 and he never got to play again because he died in a freak horseback accident seven oh. months later. Oh, no. He clotheslined himself and basically broke his own neck. <gasps> Oof. So the later games were sort of dedicated to poor Fred. Yeah, that's rough. But the players that did stay on the team included Tony Gingras, who was actually one of the first Métis hockey players. Oh, cool. Tony was born in 1875 in St. Boniface. And I think he began playing hockey sometime in the mid-1880s. And there's sort of a story that he made his own stick from a tree and used a lacrosse ball <laughs> as a puck. Which is a story for a couple of hockey players. Is the old, like, I used a like painting stick from my dad's garage. I think, ev- yeah. I think every hockey player kind of has a story a little bit like that, right? Yeah. There's the one, I can't remember who the hockey player is, who, like, would shoot pucks into their, like, mom's washing machine or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tale as old as time. Yes. But yeah, Tony uh, worked as an immigration inspector, and he had 10 kids. Whoa. So a big family. And he was the grandson of uh, Anton Blomkingris, who was um, a sort of Métis advocate and fur trader a little bit early on in the 1860s and 70s. So that's the only reason I think we'd sort of know that Gingras is Métis. Because the papers at the time in later histories referred to him as French-Canadian. Right. And I think that's that's pretty common. I oh, mean, yeah. I know of... I've certainly heard of, like, kind of early Winnipeg politicians who we now might call Métis, or at least, you know, indicate that they have some kind of, you know, indigenous mm-hmm. ancestry who at the time absolutely did not identify in that way. Yeah. So, for all intents and purposes, he likely self-identified as French-Canadian. Mm-hmm. It was obviously the safer way to identify, because at the time in the 1880s and 90s, People were not necessarily kind to the Métis citizens of Winnipeg, so... Yeah. That's likely what happened, but we do know his background now. But there are also two other Métis players, uh, Magnus and Roderick Flett. They were brothers that also played. So there were three Métis players on the team when we won the Stanley Cup. Cool. Which is very cool, but obviously that's sort of a later discovery, depending on how they self-identify. And it's not to say that early hockey teams were super inclusive, Mm -hmm. because I would suspect if they did identify as Métis... They probably would not have been allowed on the yeah, team. Yeah, that's why I think we often don't see that kind of yeah, self-identification. Exactly. But the biggest player on the team was probably Donald Bain. He was sort of an all-around athlete in Winnipeg. He was a businessman who owned a wholesale sort of empire across Western Canada for some time in the 1910s. But he was incredibly pro- prolific as an athlete. So he was born in 1874. And then he moved to Winnipeg and at 13 years old won a roller skating championship. And then he won the Manitoba Provincial Gymnastics Competition at 17. Whoa. And then at 20, he won a cycling championship. And then he went to playing lacrosse and skeet shooting and figure skating. That is quite the variety. Yeah. He was sort of an all-around athlete. Yeah. So he tries out for the Victorias in 1895 with a stick held together by wire. <laughs> and he made the cut in five minutes. Wow. That's how long he played for, and they went, this is our guy. So he became a star player on the team. He helped them win the Stanley Cup each time he played with them. Mm-hmm. So the three times we did win, it's because of him, partially. But he was also busy running a whole dry goods warehouse. Yeah, how did these guys find the time? Like, the guy with the ten kids, this guy who's apparently also, like, figure skating and running a warehouse? It's really unclear. I mean, they weren't playing in the same way a season is today, yeah. right? It wasn't quite as, like, all-consuming. Right. I guess also probably by, like, not spending time with their wives and children. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing for Donald Bain is he never married. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll he do was, it, too. A friend described him as a salty in speech and strongly opinionated. <laughs> he never married. He spent a lot of his time um, hunting and 
sort of like he managed a hunting lodge out near where I think Duck Lodge is today or something like that. Okay. But he was a fairly eccentric and private guy. Apparently on the way to the hunting lodge, he had his own private road that no one else could take so he wouldn't have to see other people on his way. (laughs) Donald Bain is uh, quite the guy. He's very interesting. But he was a fairly well-known player, and part of the reason the 1898 Stanley Cup fiasco happened is because Bain got injured. So what's the fiasco? I'm going to go in. It's not as exciting as the name sounds. Okay. <laughs> um, so the 1898 fiasco is also called the Gingras Affair, and Donald Bain was kicked off the ice almost immediately because of an eye injury. And then oh. Gingras also got hurt, apparently deliberately by Bob McDougall, who was a Montreal player. Then put on temporary captain, who asked the ref to remove Bob from the ice. The ref did not. Scandal. And then the Winnipeg team essentially just goes on strike and walks off for the remaining 12 minutes that they have left. Oh. There were 8,000 people waiting for the game to (gasps) resume, and it never did. Oh, no. And then it's a lot of he said, she said nonsense, because it's, again, playing the East, and both papers are making the other one out to be bad. So... The Montreal Gazette at one point publishes the Winnipeg View, evidently expect their team to arrive home on hospital stretchers. (laughs) When just two of their players were like mildly injured. Right. There was some theory that Bain was like never going to play again because of the eye injury, but that wound up not being true because he did play again in 1901. And this time he was wearing a mask, probably because of an eye injury. Mm -hmm. And he became known as the masked man. Right. (laughs) And... For the 1901 game, there was increased attention in actually more venues. So the game was being played in Montreal for part of it. And then they sort of came back to Winnipeg. But some of the venues this time included the auditorium rink where you could go and like skate while someone announced the game. The McIntyre rink, the Catholic club, the Grand Exchange, the Young Men's Liberal Club, the Clarendon Hotel, and the Queens and the Leland Hotel. Wow. That sounds fun to like skate while also listening to the results of a hockey game. Yeah, it was... It must have been, like, great. They had costume parties at some of these, too. It was, yeah, it was nifty. But part of what made this really interesting is there's some new tech coming into this where basically they got a projector and then a screen they could draw the plays on it and project it onto a wall. So, you know, when you watch a game today and they sort of freeze frame and draw on the play like that, they're just doing that without the video. Hmm. But they're doing that on the walls of, like, an auditorium while you're skating. Right. Other people actually called into the phone lines to get updates, so the poor girls that worked at the telephone exchange had to constantly field calls about the scores. (laughs) But we won again in 1901. And then in 1902, the Toronto Wellingtons came in and tried to take the cup from us. They tried to challenge Winnipeg for it, and we won. Wow. Uh, This time during the game, 15,000 or 1,500 people gathered at the Albert and McDermott intersection to watch the hockey updates on the Tribune building. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, they were updating the scores on a board and it was just a huge crowd of people waiting to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. So there are now three Stanley Cup wins technically in Winnipeg's belt. And that's all there is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when I was doing tours... So because I don't know hockey history, that's genuinely a surprising fact to me. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, we won it for the last time... Technically, we won it in 1901, but if you count the defending of the cup in 1903, it's three wins. Okay. It's one, it depends on who you ask. Right. So, like, before the NHL was even yeah. formed. So, yeah. Similarly, depending on who you ask, this doesn't count because there was no NHL. <laughs> ah. One of my uh, favorite tour questions was to ask when, if we've ever won the Stanley Cup. And people would generally say no, and then a couple guys would be like, well, 
technically, but not really, if you think about it. <laughs> so maybe it depends on if you're asking someone from Winnipeg or not from Winnipeg. <laughs> maybe. But I will say, if we started a tradition of drinking champagne from the cup, I think we've won the cup. Yes. Yeah, yeah we had the actual cup. It right? was in our city three times. So yeah. I think that tracks. Now, throughout all of this, there is sort of local hockey developing as well. It's not like we're, every team is going to Ottawa to play all the time. It's a lot of local stuff where, like, your workplace would form a team and you'd play someone else. Right. So there's, like, a grain exchange team and a telephone exchange team. A bunch of banks have their own hockey teams. There seems to have been a lot more, like, workplace socializing back then. Do you, oh. Do you think? I think so, yeah. Based on the fact that every workplace in the paper seems to have their own sports team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But with all of this, there's also a rise in women's hockey in Winnipeg. And it seems to have been a pretty popular sport based on how the papers reported on it. Uh, the game's often sold out. But there is, I would say, frustrating little evidence towards women's hockey in Winnipeg. Mm. Outside of, like, there's teams now, but what happened in the 1890s is a little up in the air. So by the late 1890s, we know there were teams in Winnipeg. The three that the papers mention are the, the Ladies' Dragoons... Mm -hmm. The Royal Blues and the SS Club. And the initials were a secret to the uninitiated. <laughs> so we don't know what that stands for? We don't know what that stands for. <laughs> I checked the papers. Uh. I couldn't find a follow-up. And so far as I know, there's no like club records lying around that I can't access. All right. Well, if anyone is listening and was initiated <laughs> or knows, <laughs> probably there's no one old enough to have been initiated into, into the SS club. club in 1898. Right. But I'll if you have, like, an ancestor or something... <laughs> Please let us know. I am very curious about what that could possibly stand for. But there were also work teams for women Skating as well. Skating sisters. Maybe. Honestly, that wouldn't surprise me. But what a lame, like, surprise. Yeah. Hopefully it's something more fun. Maybe. Who knows? It's one of the great lost mysteries of Winnipeg. Ah, yes. <laughs> so a lot of the teams were, like, workplace teams as well. So the ladies had an Eaton's and a telephone exchange team. And then university teams began to crop up as well. And they would then play other rural teams. So my hometown, Morris, had a ladies hockey team that would often play the Winnipeg teams. And it became a pretty big thing. And from what I can tell, women's hockey was popular until about the 1930s and 40s and then sort of drops off. And I don't really know why. Yeah. But there were playoff games in Winnipeg for women's hockey. But that's also hard to research because they have the most infuriatingly vague names of all time. <laughs> so the women were playing for the Auditorium Cup. <laughs> uh, try googling that and see if you can find anything right and then um two of the ladies teams were the women's long distance team and the women's local team oh yeah none of that's helpful for research <laughs> yeah just i spent hours just going like women's local hockey team <laughs> and you get nothing shockingly yeah. so why do you think the popularity dropped off I don't know, because you see stuff like baseball. Women's baseball gets more popular in World War II because the men right. are gone. And you get, like, a league of their own. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of the inverse of hockey. And if I had to guess, it would be because of radios and TV making men's hockey more popular. Mm, right. If I had to spitball, that would be So maybe, like, going to a local hockey game in general wasn't as exciting. Yeah, that seems to be sort of the theme is that as hockey becomes more nationally important and exciting, the local teams get less and less interest. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And if you're not, like, pitting the women against, like, a Montreal team, apparently, who cares? Mm -hmm. It's less exciting to watch them play Morris. Yeah. There's not quite so much of a feud there. The classic Winnipeg-Morris feud. Yeah. <laughs> Tale as old as time. I've said that <laughs> twice now. But uh, thankfully for us, some of the other championship cups are a little easier to research. So 
unlike the Auditorium Cup, we also have the Allen Cup. This comes about in 1908 because the Stanley Cup shifts to professional teams. Right. And then Winnipeg doesn't have a professional team, and most of Western Canada doesn't at the time, so we need Mm -hmm. something for the amateur teams in the West. In comes the Allen Cup, which is donated by um, President H. Montague Allen of the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association. Mm. It's the same rules as the Stanley Cup, and the Winnipeg team took home the Allen Cup a lot of times in the 1910s, and this is a variety of teams, including the Victorias, the Hockey Club, and the Winnipeg Monarchs. But there is one team that's not just sort of made up of old businessmen. Because that's what <laughs> the Vicks, the hockey club, and the Monarchs were all business people in Winnipeg who were sort of teamed up to play hockey. And there's one team that's sort of an exception to that rule, and that is the 61st Battalion team. Oh. Yeah. So, the so six, when is this? This is uh, around 1914, 1915. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Timeline tracks. Yeah. So the 61st Battalion was part of an infantry, infantry battalion in the Canadian Expeditionary Forces in World War I. They fought from 1915 to 1917. And sports teams seem to sort of crop up with a lot of military units. Right. Which tracks, you can see baseball teams in the Winnipeg papers as well. Mm-hmm. Different battalions formed around things. It seems like they would often play when they were sort of on the war front as well. Probably not hockey so much, but like you can do a right. pickup game of baseball if you're not in the trenches. So teams begin to crop up. And actually there is a patriotic hockey league formed in Winnipeg in 1915 that's six. 61st Battalion joins. And the 61st Battalion wins the Allen Cup in 1916, beating out a number of other Winnipeg teams. Hmm. And their team members have some incredible nicknames. There is Private Spunk Sparrow, Private Crutchy Morrison, (laughs) and John Jocko Anderson. Like Crutchy. (laughs) Spunk is the one that threw me off. That Jocko. But um, William Sparrow actually played for the Boston Bruins later. I can see actually like why a battalion would make a good team. I mean, you've already kind of got the cohesion is there. Yeah, The cohesion is there, right? You know how to like follow a plan and presumably you're physically fit. Yeah. Which actually may have been why the uh, Winnipeg Falcons did so well as well. Mm. So one of the teammates on the 61st battalion, um, John Crutchy Morrison actually went on to play for the Falcons. And the Falcons is one of Winnipeg's more well-known hockey teams. They actually have a heritage minute all about them. Yeah. The Falcons, even I know about them. Yeah. Which is, Shocking for you. (laughs) But uh, the Falcons are sort of an interesting team because they're formed sort of in opposition to what's going on in hockey generally. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the hockey league teams in Winnipeg were Anglo-Saxon businessmen or French-Canadian businessmen. But a lot of people were actually banned from playing. Among them were Icelandic Canadians. Uh, People had a lot of weird stereotypes about Eastern European immigrants specifically in Mm -hmm. the late 1890s early 1900s the onset of world war one didn't help matters with stuff like that because we were fighting countries like germany so there's yeah sort of an anti-eastern european thing going on in winnipeg which is why the icelandic canadians couldn't play on general teams iceland isn't eastern europe though no that's true but like i feel like anything that's not anglo-saxon or french is sort of excluded right right yeah because people complain about like ukrainians the greeks germans true (laughs) italians I suppose this is, I mean, this is a little deep for a hockey history, but that's kind of before all of those peoples are like recategorized as white, quote unquote. Yeah, it's a very real thing that happened because these people came from Iceland or were second generation immigrants. So they still spoke Icelandic Mm -hmm. and they were sort of culturally different than, say, the upper crust of Winnipeg. Right. So the Falcons formed in 1911 with sort of an amalgamation of the both Viking and the Icelandic athletic clubs. 
And then they formed their own hockey league, the Manitoba Independent League. And this included teams from Brandon and other sort of Manitoban cities. And they gained traction, they gained traction as a popular and skilled team, but World War I really put a damper on this because most of the team enlisted. So they played their last game on February 24th, 1915, and then didn't play again for four years. Wow. Because they all went overseas. Right. So they all volunteered and joined the uh, 223rd Battalion, which was all Scandinavian Canadians. And the uh, uh, 223rd Battalion made their own team in the Patriotic League, but it wasn't the Falcons. And they did lose two of their players fighting overseas. Uh, Frank Thornstein and George Cumbers both died in the war. So not all of the team returned home. But then they came back and the team reformed and they started playing again in the 1919-1920 season. And most of the same players had returned, but they picked up one new person, uh, a Canadian speed skater, Mike Goodman. Okay. He joins the ranks. And so the Falcons won locally. They beat the Selkirk Fishermen 11-6 to and they went off to Toronto to compete for the Allen Cup, which they won, beating the Toronto Varsity team. Okay. Uh, they beat them 3-2. to and the Tribune in Winnipeg called them the Hoggish Easterners <laughs> to concede that the Falcons were the best Winnipeg te- or the best Canadian team. But uh, one of the benefits to winning the Allen Cup in 1920 is it guaranteed you a ticket to the Olympics huh. in Antwerp. So the Falcons didn't think they were going to win the Allen Cup. They'd only packed enough for a few days, and the bookies in town were really, really taking bets on Toronto winning. Mm-hmm. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. So after they had won, the Winnipeg, or the city of Winnipeg and the province of Manitoba sent the team $500, and people sort of rallied to send them clothes and money for the trip. <laughs> and there were six teams competing in the Olympics that year. What a good, like, underdog story, though. It really is. As a quick reminder, they've only been playing for a few months. Oh, wow. They, started, they got back from the war in 1919, reformed, won the cup. Right. That is the timeline. Because the Olympics that year were in April of 1920. That's crazy. It's a very fast timeline, but the team was good. Yeah. So when they reached Antwerp, they were facing off um, a number of sort of European teams. So it was Belgium, France, Czechoslovakia, Switzerland, and Sweden. And then America were all playing against Canada for the cup. And apparently the European teams, after seeing the Falcons practice, actually started stuffing their clothing with cotton and magazines to act as padding. Because <laughs> they didn't have padding back then, I guess. Right. What you had is essentially a bunch of tall and strong Icelandic people playing that right. they hadn't seen be this good before. <laughs> so they panic and start basically creating padding for themselves. And then in what would I, I would call the most Canadian twist of all time, the Falcons start coaching the other teams. Because <laughs> they're waiting for America to get there. America's running late because of like, I'm assuming a travel issue. So they have time to practice and coach. Oh man. The days when they just like postpone the Olympics a little bit because someone's running late. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's harder when you're traveling by boat. Uh, Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) The schedules aren't so firm. No, not so much. But also the coaching didn't seem to help because the Falcons won 15 to 0 against Czechoslovakia. Whoa. And then they just continued winning. Czechoslovakia, get your act together. Yeah, right? It's brutal. The American team was the toughest. It was a 2-0 win. I mean, that's more like what we're used to seeing now. That's a more typical game. Yeah, 15-0 would be devastating. Yeah. And then eventually they defeated Sweden 12 to 1, and they took home the gold. Wow. Which is incredible. And everyone in Canada was stoked. Apparently when the House of Commons heard the entire house broke into applause. Oh. When the Falcons returned back to Toronto, there were about 2,000 people waiting at the train stop just to see them on the way back home to Winnipeg. And Winnipeg, as we always do, 
went hard with their celebration. Of course. There was a mile-long parade that went from Portage and Maine all the way around with 200 cars, trucks, bikes, and horse-drawn vehicles. Early Winnipeg loved parades. So much. So, so many parades. Yeah, it's really an endless, like, any chance to have one, yeah. Winnipeg will hold a parade. <laughs> so the players got their own car, and so did the players' families, which is particularly exciting because most of their families were first-generation immigrants. Right. They'd all come from Iceland within the past 45 years. These were all the kids that had just won a big national event, and it was a huge sort of win for the Icelandic community in Winnipeg. Especially for players who had been ostracized, essentially. Yeah, from every other major league in town. Right. Yeah. And then uh, the city gave them all gold watches. Oh. Yeah, a very nice little win. So they had a number of people traveling with them. They had secretaries as well as a Olympic representative who basically reported home to the papers about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But their coach and trainer was Gordon Sigurdsson, who had immigrated in uh, 1914, where he had learned wrestling in Iceland, and he came over, he started coaching hockey right away, and then he returned back to Iceland in 1920. Oh. So he's only in Winnipeg for six years, basically enough to wrestle, coach the Falcons, go back home. And... Uh, Sigurdsson's story is sort of interesting because he worked in a psychiatric hospital in Iceland and he was a staunch abolitionist. Huh. So he was against the consumption of alcohol. And then in 1924... Wait, prohibitionist. Right? Uh, abolitionist is sort of the thing they'll use too. Okay. I've heard both. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Because what happens next is a man named Steindor accuses Gordon of sexually assaulting patients in his hospital. Oh. But... Steindor later withdrew his charges, saying he'd been bribed by bootleggers to implicate Gordon. Oh my god. But the police still had to investigate. Uh, yeah. And I they mean, clear I hope Gordon so. of any charge of assaulting sort of the patients. But he is then charged for having sexual relations with another man. Oh. And he served eight months in jail. Oh. He is the only person in Iceland to ever serve a prison sentence for sodomy charges. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Like, what a story. That, is that, so that's before or after he was here? After. This is uh, 1924. So uh, he helps win the Olympics, goes back home. And goes back happens. home and is arrested for sodomy. Yeah. Bad job, Iceland. Yeah, it's a rough start. Yeah. But then a number of the other sort of teammates go on to do bigger and better things later on. So Frank Fredrickson was the team captain. He also played for the Victoria Cougars, the Boston Bruins, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Detroit Falcons in the NHL. And he helped the Victoria team win the Stanley Cup in 1925. And one person called him the Babe Ruth of hockey. <laughs> and then Conrad Johansson, who was the right defenseman on the team, he coached the Falcons later on and then actually went into aviation. Oh, that's so fun. So he was in the Flying Corps in World War I, and he actually became the first airport manager in Winnipeg in 1927. <laughs> that's cute. So a varied career. Right. I guess it's not until quite a bit later that you actually get, like, professional hockey players, essentially. Yeah. There were professional teams outside of Winnipeg, but we just hadn't made one yet. So we're mm -hmm. pretty much strictly amateur until the Jets, which is a couple decades from the 1920s still. Hmm. And the Falcons did have one other player who didn't play for the Olympic sort of win, but joined the team later. It's uh, Mud Brotenow. Mud? His, I don't know. I don't remember his name is. His nickname was Mud. Okay. <laughs> But Mud ended the longest overtime game in NHL history oh. in 1936. It was a playoff game and there were six overtimes. Oh no. So the game ended at 2.25 a.m. Oh, <laughs> So it was 176 minutes of overtime. Oh, not wow. including actual play. That's too much. Yeah. When would you have gone home approximately, Alex? Like halfway before the overtime. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that little bit between second and third period, yeah. that sweet spot. <laughs> like when they let me get up to go get a beer, I just leave instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you get home and find out it ended at two in the morning. Be like, oh, I made the I'm right like, call. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I left. I probably would have stayed the whole time, but I would have been really mad when it was over. <laughs> so following the Falcons' big Olympic win, hockey gets a little less exciting in Manitoba. We keep winning the Allen Cup. So the Winnipeg Hockey Club, hockey club won it again in 1931. But hockey is still sort of locally interesting, and there's a bunch of local teams still playing. Um, the coach of the Falcons for a while, Fred Steamer Maxwell, by the 1930s was saying the game had changed. So at one point they had had seven players. It was now down to six. And he said it created a more scientific style of hockey. The old style was more slam bang (laughs) in the words of Maxwell. So one thing that I feel like we need to bring back is all these fun hockey nicknames. Yeah. Do our players have, have nicknames now? Not that I know of. Not really. Can we start calling one of them just Mud? Yeah. <laughs> who, who on the Jets wants to be Mud? <laughs> or like Jocko. Yeah. <laughs> I like Steamer. Yeah, Steamer's yeah, really steamers, good. I mean, that's a real like proper nickname. Yeah, a lot of them are just like Jocko's last name was, I think, Jackson. Okay. So like it comes from somewhere, but it's yeah. weird still. And then um, the Winnipeg Hockey Club actually wins the Olympic gold medal in hockey in 1932. Ah. So two Winnipeg teams have done that. And then um, at a International Ice Hockey Federation tournament, the Winnipeg Monarchs took home gold in 1935. So there's still some wins in the 1930s, but, I mean, with the Depression going on, there's other things that people are focusing on. Hockey is less a priority, right. sort of nationally. But by the 1940s, we actually see the rising star Terry Sawchuk come out of Winnipeg. Mm. So Sawchuk was born in Winnipeg's North End in 1929 to immigrant parents. At a young age, he actually hurt his right shoulder or his right elbow playing rugby, and then he hit it, so the injury never healed, which meant his right arm was a little shorter than the left. Huh. He was kind of lopsided. But he kept playing sports. He actually borrowed his goalie equipment and started playing in local leagues. By 14, he'd been scouted by the Detroit Red Wings, who let him practice with them. And then he went to Ontario to play in a junior league until he turned 18, at which point he joined the Detroit team for real. Wow. And Sawchuk's a good example of how violent hockey could be without protective equipment. Yes. So this is, even I know about this. Yes. Yeah. So at the time, there wasn't really much for protective equipment. You might have worn like leather pants or something like leather protective equipment, but Mm. not enough that would stop you from being seriously hurt. And goalies didn't wear helmets. At most, they might wear a mask. And Sawchuk Mm -hmm. didn't. So what that meant is Sawchuk was routinely injured. During his career, he had three operations on his right elbow and at appendectomy, countless cuts and bruises, a broken foot, a collapsed lung, ruptured discs in his back, and severed tendons in his hand. He also received approximately 400 stitches to his face, including three in his right eyeball, before he began wearing a face mask in 1962. I mean, from what I know, like, before him, essentially, it was seen as almost, like, unsportsmanlike to be wearing, like, protective equipment. Yeah, basically. It wasn't manly, right? Right. You just got to let yourself be hit in the face yeah. a bunch of times during a game. And that's, that's what masculinity is, I guess. Yeah, masculinity is being okay with brain trauma. <laughs> so in 1966, a Life magazine had a makeup, art, or Life magazine had a makeup artist come in to apply uh, stitches and scars to his face to show all of his injuries over the years. And they didn't have enough room for everything. I've seen this picture. It's, it's really neat. It's fascinating, yeah. But 
in his personal life, Sawchuck struggled with depression and alcoholism, which mm-hmm. probably wasn't helped by his frequent injuries, yeah. the frequent head trauma, and the pressures of his job. There were no backup goalies. He was the only goalie the team had. If he was out, the team could lose. Ugh. And then he died at age 40 in 1970. He uh, suffered internal injuries after a fight with his uh, teammate, Ron Stewart. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, it's not a happy story necessarily, no. but he... I mean, I think, like, even now we're only just starting to talk about, like, the long-term impacts of those, like, traumatic br- brain injuries, oh, right? yeah, they can mess you up. Yeah. Yeah, Sawchuk, I mean, he was one of the best goalies, and he's still, like, widely regarded as a good hockey player, but mm-hmm. his story really shows how sort of aggressive and high-pressure and violent hockey could be, and thankfully that's changed. People wear helmets now. Yeah. <laughs> So come the 1950s, though, things began to change in a major way because we get television. Ah. This is the game changer. Prior to this, you would either, you know, go to a hotel and hear telegraph updates. But the 1920s and 30s, you might have used a radio mm-hmm. or you could have read it in the papers. But television is maybe the biggest thing to come to hockey ever. Mm-hmm. So the first televised game was in 1940. And it was between the Montreal Canadiens and the New York Rangers. It was shown in Madison Square Gardens. In Canada, the first ever televised game was in 1952, which was the Canadians versus the Detroit Red Wings, cool. where Sawchuck may have actually been playing. Oh. And then over the course of the 50s and 60s, more and more families got TV in their homes, and people just began staying home to watch hockey. Why bother going out to do that, right? Right. And with that, hockey becomes increasingly commercial, and then attendance in the local league starts to drop, mm-hmm. which impacts a lot of our local teams. So... Also going on in the 1950s is the construction of a new uh, arena in 1955, the Winnipeg Arena, where Polo Park sort of is, that area. That was there until recently, I believe. Yeah, they tore it down. Um, (laughs) I was in university. Yeah. It was about 2003 or four. Okay, yeah. Um, You can see moments of it in Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So the arena was built in 1955 as a replacement for a Shays Amphitheater, which is where uh, the Great West Life Building is on Osborne. Ah. So the Winnipeg Arena was one of the finest rink facilities in Western North America. I don't know what the finest one in the Eastern half was. (laughs) That's one of my favorite things about Winnipeg. And we may have mentioned this in the last episode, but that everything we have is like the best in Western Canada. Like the the oldest in Western Canada. (laughs) The best in Western Canada that's never done this thing. It's always like very specific criteria. (laughs) So the auditorium could seat 9,000 people. And the first game it saw was the Winnipeg Warriors versus the Calgary Stampeders. They were both teams in the short-lived Western Professional Hockey League. Mm. So the Warriors were a professional team, but the games didn't see a whole lot of people. In fact, the game at the arena actually saw the largest crowd out of any game in the league, which was 9,671 people. Wow. And for a while, the team did well and made money. Its crowds were larger than the Monarchs did, or the Warriors did well. And the owner of the club, uh, Jack Perrin Jr., was a hockey fan, so he wasn't expecting to make a huge profit. But then by the end of the 1950s, we see a real sharp decline in attendance and interest. And part of this is because the team couldn't make money to keep going. So the arena charged them uh, an absurdly high rent price. It was 20% of their profits went to the arena. Oh, and they made no money from parking or concessions. Oh, yikes. And then the Warriors just kept playing badly. So the team had folded by 1961, but some of the players then went on to join the NHL. Hmm. But part of the low attendance is probably that you couldn't run games on Saturday nights. Because that's when the NHL was playing on TV. 
So you could do Friday night, a weekday, or hypothetically Sunday, but not in Manitoba. Mm, Yeah. Because commercial sports could not be played on Sundays. I mean, this is something that'll come up again and again. Almost nothing was allowed on Sundays. No, very little. Pretty recently. So you could play an amateur game on a Sunday. Mm Mm-hmm. And you could make some money by passing the hat. It was sort of like a loophole in making money with hockey. Right. But passing the hat at a professional game isn't going to make you enough to cover costs. So do you mean like literally passing around a hat for money? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe this is the thing I would do. At, this is the thing you would do at church sometimes. <laughs> uh, basically, you take a hat and you pass it around. People put money into it as you go. Yeah. Happens when you, when em- you go to the ballet, they do like the pass the slipper thing. Yeah. Oh, boy. I just realized what a difference in that <laughs> No, it's fine. The MTC just does a basket now, but I think yeah. it's still called Pass the Hat. But that was the loophole, but the Mon- or the Warriors couldn't make do. And then another issue is that Winnipeg was pretty far away from the rest of the league because everyone else was sort of playing in the Alberta area. Mm. So you'd have to make a whole trip through Saskatchewan to play, and that's a scheduling nightmare. So a lot of things went into the decline of the Warriors, but television was a pretty major impact on that and all other forms of local hockey. Yeah, I mean, like, thinking about right now, like, I can't think of anyone who's super invested in, like, a smaller local hockey team in the same way that people are invested in, like, the Jets. No, you're not going to see a bunch of, like, Moose jerseys in downtown no. Winnipeg the same way you'd see a Jets jersey during a playoff game. Yeah. Like, I suppose, you know, people who play on teams is a little different, yeah. you know? But. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right? Mm-hmm. TV made a lot of sort of bigger changes And then the NHL becomes more and more popular with that. And Winnipeg actually has a surprising number of players that go into the NHL later on. Not all of them are the most exciting in terms of their story. They've all made like (laughs) hockey impacts in their own way. But talking about player stats for the next like 40 minutes is not going to be interesting for anyone. There are other places you can go and do that. (laughs) I feel like Alex would fall asleep on me. Yeah. I'm going to leave while you do that. (laughs) (laughs) One of the more interesting players to come out of Winnipeg was Alton White Jr., who is the second professional black hockey player in the history of hockey oh my god yeah so the first one in case you're curious is willie o'ree from nova scotia (laughs) but uh alton was born in amherst nova scotia in 1945 his family moved to winnipeg in 1952 and his family lived on jesse avenue so he was sort of a north ender much like sawchuck was right and then he got to start playing baseball but he'd learned to skate at an early age so apparently once he moved to winnipeg he began playing hockey and his experience with people were very willing to just share equipment so he borrowed from friends, he played pickup mm-hmm. games, and he started playing in the Manitoba Junior Hockey League with the Winnipeg Rangers in 1962-63, to 63, and he was seventh best in the league. Wow. He was also the first black hockey player to ever score a hat trick. Do you know what a hat trick is, Alex? <laughs> no. Haha, <laughs> 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 I got you. It's three goals in a row or three goals in a game. Okay. You know, I was going to guess something different, so I'm glad that I said no. You need, you need to tell me what you're going to guess now. I don't know. I thought it was like two goals <laughs> or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I thought it was. Well, you know now. Yeah. So I've al- forgotten already. <laughs> three goals in a row. Thank you. Or in a game. It depends on who you ask, but All it's right. basically three goals is a hat trick. Right. And that is, I believe, a lacrosse and it carried over to hockey. Okay. Does it? Is there an origin to that? Why is that a hat trick? Um, I looked this up and I remember the exact details of the story, but basically, um, a player got three goals in a row. He won money from this. He bought a hat. Oh, (laughs) I mean, why not? I guess. What if he had bought something else? Ta-da! The hat trick. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, jeez. 
I don't remember anything else. I looked it up this morning. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, there were some issues for um, Alton, though, in that he was tiny for a hockey player. He was 5'9 and 170 pounds. Hmm. Most players are over six feet and like 200 pounds and up. Well, I think hockey players have gotten bigger, too. They have for sure, yeah. Yeah. But even by the standards of the 50s, he was tiny. And apparently, um, he had a penchant for playing hockey on the clean side. Aw. <laughs> so he wasn't quite as violent as some of the other players. Right. He would later go on to join the International Hockey League and then the World Hockey League, where he played for New York and Los Angeles. He then retired from hockey in 1975. So he never actually managed to play in the NHL properly, which means that to a certain extent, people don't really talk about him so much as other black hockey players. It's one of those weird things where if it's not in the NHL, it doesn't count. Right. Which is not necessarily true. Like, arguably, Alton White Jr. made some impact on hockey. His legacy deserves Mm -hmm. to be remembered in some capacity. And, like, Winnipeg is such a hockey city, despite the fact that for a long time it had no NHL team. Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple of articles. And there's not too much information on Alton Wayne Jr. He is still alive, though. Oh. He's still around. He did an interview cool. not too long ago. Well, yeah. hello. He seems like a cool dude. <laughs> <laughs> so past this point, there's more and more interest in Winnipeg getting their own professional sort of hockey team outside of, like, the Western Can- Canadian Leagues. So following the 1950s and 60s, there's an increased interest in getting a sort of larger, more professional hockey team coming into Winnipeg. And this is where we get the Winnipeg Jets. Cool. So the team was founded in 1972, and they're actually playing in the World Hockey Association, which is sort of a different thing than the NHL. It was formed as like a sort of contrasting league. I'm going to show my ignorance, but that's not around anymore? No. Okay. No, it's definitely not. So... The World Hockey Association basically folds by 79, and the Jets join the NHL. So the Jets make their own sort of splashy entrance into the World Hockey Association. So within their first year, they managed to sign um, hockey superstar Bobby Hull. Oh, that's a name that I know. Oh, okay. So Hull was born in Ontario. He played for the Chicago Blackhawks, and he had this sort of massive blonde hair, and that's very much what he was known mm. for. So he was nicknamed the Golden Jet. Ah. Uh. Yeah. And then Hull was also partially responsible for starting this craze called Banana Blades. <laughs> what is Banana Blades? It's basically a more curved hockey stick. Okay. But the downside is it made the puck really hard to predict. Mm. And it would give it a little bit more torque so it could seriously hurt goalies mm. who were still not wearing helmets. Oh, jeez. Uh, so as a note here, helmets were only made mandatory in 1979. But there was an exception for players who had already signed up with the league who had signed waivers. Who were, like, grandfathered in, essentially. Yeah. So uh, Craig McTavish was the last player to never wear a hockey helmet. Wow. And he retired in 1997. Oh, uh, Craig. <laughs> it's dangerous. Yeah. Protect your noggin. The Jets also pioneered uh, something that we see a lot in sort of the NHL today, which is actually importing European hockey players. Yes. And the Jets began that with um, acquiring Anders Hedberg and uh, Ulf Nilsson in 1974 and between uh Hedberg Nilsson and Hull they made a pretty dynamic sort of lineup in the league and they got 156 goals in the 1974-75 season so the Jets were the most successful team in the uh, WHA and they won three of the seven championships including one in 1979 against Wayne Gretzky and the Oilers oh yeah but then we joined the NHL in 1979, and the Jets sort of struggled to break out on their own. The other teams in Western Canada were tough, and we never really got close to tasting that Stanley Cup victory ever again. Mm. 
And then this version of the Jets was sold to Arizona in 1996. And mm-hmm. then no more Jets for a number of years until 2010, when they come back under the ownership of True North Entertainment. And they're still around. And they're still a big deal. People go crazy. They do. And we've come close to winning the Stanley Cup once. Yeah. I remember, a, I guess it was two years ago, I was in I was in Toronto, so I wasn't here. And I came back to visit while we were in the playoffs. And like came back for a weekend and everyone was asking me, like, are you watching the game tonight? And I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> oh, no. I'm like, uh, I don't like... Yeah, I went out to watch. I went to one of the whiteout parties, which um, basically are massive street parties for the Jets where everyone wears a white shirt and goes and drinks and watches the game on big mm-hmm. projector screens. It was chaos and it made busing home very hard later on in the day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely avoided downtown on yeah. days with Jets games. But it's sort of a nice parallel to what happened in like the 1890s when people went to like a very small intersection to watch someone post a telegram on a board. Yeah. It's the same thing. Winnipeg has been doing this since the 1890s. Right. So that is like over a hundred years of hockey fandom that is very intense in particular. And And celebrated in similar ways. That's that's kind of nice that we like to kind of get together as a community and sort of the score. (laughs) Yeah. Really rally together. And obviously uh, there's a lot more hockey stuff going on in Manitoba than this. Other cities have their own leagues and uh, teams and a lot of neighborhoods in Winnipeg will have their own teams as well. So like there's a team and I think Charleswood and Transcone and they all sort of play each other. There's beer leagues, pickup games. People play hockey all the time. It is something that is just impossible to avoid Mm -hmm. in Manitoba. And I hope you've gotten a taste for how deeply entrenched hockey is into Manitoban culture. And Alex, have I convinced you to be a little more interested in hockey today? Uh, I'm probably still not going to watch hockey, (laughs) (laughs) but I do appreciate the, you know, the impact that it's had on our community. Yeah, I think it's... That's my diplomatic answer to say no. (laughs) That's fine. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to win you over a whole lot, but it's fun. It's interesting. I really like sort of the old horrifying hockey anecdotes Uh, about the violent games. They're always very interesting. I like the nicknames. The nicknames are very fun. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to give you a hockey nickname for next week. Oh, I can't wait. I'll let you mull that one over. (laughs) I'll think about it. (laughs) But thanks for listening. That's been One Great History. If you liked the show, tell someone, tell a friend, tell a family member. If you didn't like it, maybe tell someone you don't like or just like sit on it and don't tell us. That's fine too. Uh, You can find us at One Great History on Instagram and Facebook. We're on Twitter at the number one great history. And you can visit us at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. Thank you. We'll see you next time.